Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'm Adam Coleman, welcoming you into the Cosmic Library and the never-ending worlds of Scheherazade. This episode's about survival in the Thousand One Nights, and in stories generally. You're going to hear especially from a radio host who makes fiction, and from a critic of books and TV that might be apparently never-ending. Survival of story or in life means continuation. It means keeping a story going from one night to the next, or in our case, recording one episode after another, one conversation after another, and pursuing the thought or plot point interrupted at the end of the preceding episode. But to really survive, there has to be more than just trudging along, from sequel to sequel, day to day. A story like a person's life can't just be repetitive. It can't just be about satisfying each preceding cliffhanger. Something else is needed to keep things alive. Something else is needed to make things alive. But what is it? One answer lies in why we feel a connection to things like the Thousand and One Nights. And that answer has nothing to do with entertainment's lures. Certainly not with commercial entertainment's lures. When we think about surviving, when we think about stories that survive in the way that Scheherazade's stories keep a king from murder and keep readers' attentions for centuries, we're thinking about something so much bigger. I believe we're thinking about something that maintains an expansive potential. In any case, it's helpful to think harder about what it means to survive, really, and about what really matters in stories and in lives that go on. This is Hardy White of Miracle Nutrition on WFMU. Okay, and now we're going, and... He was interrupted mid-thought at the end of the last episode, but he's back. Um, maybe I know what I was talking, thinking about. I was talking about necessity. Oh boy, I should get as far away from that as possible. I don't know. Hardy makes a weekly radio show with recurring fictional characters. And in that show, he muses upon TV as well as religious services and time travel and a lot more. You know, all these things, like I said, just have to do with the way I want to communicate things, which is not in a, in story form. Or maybe it is, but then keep telling it over and over again and changing things or contradicting myself or using the same characters and and have it be similar but different. Sustaining ongoing fictions like Scheherazade's nightly stories in The Thousand and One Nights is, to an extent a matter of maintaining. Maintaining the characters, maintaining the fiction, or you could say maintaining Scheherazade herself. Mazin now says of the knights. But it's also a story about survival. In Kosovo, there was some kind of play after the genocides and in, in which 
there was a referencing of the Arabian Nights you know, basically surviving. And we're talking about femicide in the Arabian Nights, but we know what happened in Kosovo. So there are connections. People who survive or there's an issue of survival. We see many of you know the, the cultural productions that come out out of that survival uh, reference the Nights often. The Knights have, at their core, a horrific story, but a heroic teller of stories responding to that horror. Here's Yasmin Seal, whose translations of the Knights you can read in the new annotated Arabian Nights from Live Right, an imprint at W.W. Norton. This was the story of a man who experiences a complicated emotion and commits mass murder in response. And I can't really put it better than that. It's a kind of misogyny on the scale of a kingdom and... What Shahrazad decides to do is to prevent any more women from being killed by holding the king captive by telling him stories night after night. She is more of a concept than a character. She is barely described in the text. This is the interesting thing. People have tried to paint her and represent her, but we know nothing about her physically from the text. Everything we know about her is internal. We know that she is a great reader and she has remembered a great deal. She's a kind of library. So she's this kind of disembodied voice. She represents speech that is always threatened with being cut short. And in that way, I think she is a kind of authorial figure. She is the figure of the writer. The spectre of death hangs over her if you think that death is the prospect of no longer being read, no longer being listened to. This is what hangs over every writer. And I think that is maybe one of the reasons that this story, this scenario has has fascinated so many writers. It dramatizes the death of the author who is no longer read. And she represents a kind of principle of creation, an idea of literature which is to do with recombination and channeling what you have read into new material. She is not so much inventing or creating original material as recombining what has been done before. Other stories in the Nights also convey this idea of stories' vital power, its revitalizing power, or at least the way story responds to death's threat. Yeah, I mean, one of the embedded stories is the story of King Yunnan and his doctor Duban, which is a story that's been really influential on people like Umberto Eco, and many others, because it's a story about the power of books. It's a story that ends with, I mean, this is a bit of a spoiler alert, but with a book exerting a kind of power beyond death. So this is the story of a doctor who cures the king of leprosy and is, as a result, rewarded with great honours by the king and becomes the favourite at his court to the point that the king's other favourites and courtiers become jealous of him and try to convince the king that this doctor has in fact come with a conspiracy to kill the king. And the king believes this and decides that he needs to get rid of this wise doctor. The king gives the order to the executioner to kill the wise man. The wise man said, is this my reward? It is like the reward of the crocodile. What, said the king, is the story of the crocodile? I am in no condition to tell you a story, said the wise man. But I beg you, spare me, and God will spare you. But kill me and be killed. And he wept heavy tears. Then a few of the king's noblemen stood up and said, Majesty, spare him for our sake. He has done nothing wrong. 
You do not know, said the king, why I must kill him. If I were to spare him, I would die myself, for he has cured me from a distance of an illness that defied the doctors, and did so with a thing I only had to hold. I cannot be sure he will not kill me with the same device. I must kill him to be safe. Again the wise man said, Spare me, and God will spare you, but kill me and be killed. I have to kill you, said the king. And when the wise Duban was sure his end had come, he said, Majesty, delay my death a little, allow me time to return home, leave instructions for my burial, fulfill my obligations and give alms, and donate my books on medicine and science to a deserving home. In particular, I have a book, rarest of the rare, I want to give to you to keep among your treasures. What makes the book so rare, said the king? Its wonders are not to be counted, said Duban, but the first of its secrets is this. If you, Majesty, cut off my head and open the book at the sixth page and read three lines from the left page and speak to me, my head will speak to you and answer what you ask. The king was amazed. Do you mean, he said, that if I cut off your head, open the book and read the lines you say? and speak to your head, it will speak to me. Nothing could be stranger. He sent the wise man home with guards to settle his affairs, and on the following day he went back to the court, and so too did the princes and viziers, officers and nobles. Then the wise Duban arrived, and in his hands were an old book and a coal jar containing powder. He sat down, sent for a tray, poured out the powder, spread it, and said to the king, Take this book, Majesty, and do not open it until I die. Then have my head placed on the tray and pressed into the powder. This will staunch the blood. Open the book, address your questions to my head, and it will answer back. There is no power and no strength except in God. And remember, spare me and God will spare you, but kill me and be killed. I have to kill you, said the king, if only to see your head speak. He took the book and told the executioner to cut off the wise man's head. He drew the sword and with a single stroke he dropped the head into the tray and pressed it in the powder and the bleeding stopped. Then the wise Duban opened his eyes and said, Now, Majesty, open the book. When the king opened the book, he found the pages stuck. He put his finger to his mouth and wet it with saliva and turned to the first page. In the same effortful way, he turned page after page, and when he had turned seven and found nothing written, he said, Duban, I cannot see a written word inside this book. Keep turning, said Duban. The king turned more pages and found nothing, but as he licked and turned, the drug entered his body. The book was laced with poison and he began to sway and heave and shake. When the wise Duban saw that the king began to sway and shake, he said these lines. Their reign was long and cruel, and in a moment gone. Had justice been their rule, justice would be done. But they, brutal in power, have met a brutal end, and wake to hear the hour crowing its revenge. As the wise man's head finished these lines, the king fell dead, then the head died too.
part of what keeps story and those relying on it alive, enduring, might have less to do with narrow ideas of story's entertainment value and more to do with the textures of story. Hardy White finds a way to explain it very clearly. He does so using the Three Stooges as an example. Three Stooges has no continuity. You know, there's no like Three Stooges backstory and then that's the same every two reeler, right? And they're, they're an interesting length to me. And I would watch them and think about them as individual little entities and little worlds. And the gags, too, were all, they borrowed gags, too. They, some were original, some that people have done previously. And sometimes they were centered around just doing a gag. For instance, there's this scene where Curly is eating clam chowder. And it's so fresh that the clams pop up and squirt cream at him or something <laughs> occasionally so it's a little and you know if you look at it, you go okay that's cool so somebody's hand is under there with a you know that's a contraption and that's neat that's like something that you can make and it's a visual gag it's a you know there's there's stagecraft involved they didn't come up with that idea that had been filmed before that gag right but they made a situation around it so they could do it so they could film it you know, the story's not important. <laughs> you don't think of like a narrative in Three Stooges. It's all just there to serve the dance or the rhythm of the other stuff that's going on, the, the physical stuff and the gags. Rather than a story, it is about a situation. Right, yes. It's about that situation in the same way that the comic strip Nancy. So, you know, that's the same way. So it's built around a gag, a visual gag, or a pun, or something, you know, Nancy, and it's, I'm talking about Bushmiller's Nancy, you know, real stylized, and this beautiful economy of imagery, the thing that's emphasized is the gag, you know, which can be anything. Is there something fundamentally unsatisfying about stories that's sort of crucial to the Thousand One Nights, like, this one story isn't going to end the thing, because it, it can't end the thing. It can't perfectly satisfy you or, or totally amuse the king. You've got to wait till the next night and the next night and the next night. Right. Is there something about stories bound to let you down, which is why in your own work you kind of escape the story or you, step, you use the story and step outside it? I think stories are at best lies and at worst dangerous because they're lies and they purport to say something. And you'll notice that more and more we're into story, like as a culture, you know, you tell me your story. My story? I beg your pardon? <laughs> you know, what do you want? What you want is me to select little events and then condense them, interpret them, disregard other information. Even if you tell a story and you say, I'm going to tell it, I'm going to be historically accurate, it's impossible. Things are going to change to serve the narrative. Because nothing is a narrative. Nothing is really a story. It doesn't have some, some kind of conclusion. And you don't know really how one thing led to another necessarily. You're, you're just grabbing a couple things that you think might be contenders for causation. But you're assuming a lot. And then you're, you're making pronouncements. And then you're going, the end. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, uh, I mean, that, so that's crazy. It's a bad idea to reduce things to stories. And I know you say, oh, we'd be all floundering if, you know, you know stories keep us anchored or we know, it. or do they? I mean, they keep us anchored. Maybe they keep us fettered. Maybe they keep us tethered. There's other ways to do things, I'm, I'm sure. Or, or to put things in context and say, well, the story is just a, 
you know, it's a meaningless thing. It's like a Three Stooges. It's not a story at all. Like, what is the story of the, the Three Stooges go? They get a, a job as plumbers at a fancy house, and then they get it wrong, and then the water comes out of the electrical pipe so that when the fancy people turn on their TV to debut it to their fancy friends, there's a picture of Niagara Falls, but then all of a sudden water comes gushing out of it. Is that the story? You know, the end. <laughs> what do we learn from that? You know, what's really fun is get an old TV guide. And TV guide had to have these little, like, one-paragraph descriptions of what you were going to see on television. And they're funny because you can't reduce, a lot of things can't be reduced to just, you know, that paragraph. And it's hilarious what's, what's emphasized. And I think that's, like, what stories are. It's like you're trying to describe a complicated thing where a lot of things happen by cherry-picking events. What's the use of, you know, making uh, manics? What's the use of having TV stories existing? There's still something. Is it about experiencing a lie that then you recognize as a lie because it's a cheesy TV show? Is that is that the value? Yeah, well, I guess you know what's going to happen. Therefore, you don't have to use any kind of predictive senses. And, you know, your expectations are met, which is really satisfying. It's like lucid dreaming. So I'm going to... I'm going to control, and that's what movies are. They're like, they're like lucid dreams. You can just stick, you know what's going to happen. You can put yourself in there, and you can experience the pleasure of being a god, which is controlling everything, and, you know, and being, uh, just feeling like, yes, this uh, outside things are happening on the inside of me. And um, that's what stories do, too. It's, you know, the, the, the real world is clearly happening. Well, maybe not clearly, but it, it feels like it's happening on the outside. So as I navigate my life, fiction, that feels like it's happening on the inside a bit, as if I'm one of the characters or I'm there. But I'm also clear that I'm not going to get hurt. I don't get a pain in my chest if somebody shoots towards the camera on TV. Mm. You know, I know that's not me, but yet I can let it into my head. I mean, but I think a lot of it is, is the craft of the, of the way it's delivered the manner that it gets in there. With The New Yorker's Katie Waldman, I also talked about the way we live with fiction or the way that fiction lives and dies before us as readers. You can sort of just see when you're reading a book how much is left. It actually reminds me of reading poetry where just the length of the line is really powerful and sort of orienting you. And I think it's Jory Graham who said that every line ending is a rehearsal of death and resurrection because you just hurdle off the end of the page. You just like can drop off the end of the line. And then there's another line that, that you pick up again, but it's a pretty literal stark enactment of dying and then hopefully being reborn. When someone starts talking on TV, you don't know when their monologue is gonna end. You have no idea. So there's this weird combination of knowing an ending is out there and not really knowing what's going to happen. Here's Hardy White. You know, experience is often confusing, tedious. You're not sure what to notice. You know, and, and I like movies like that, too, where I'm shown something and go, why isn't the camera moving? <laughs> you know, I'm getting a little uncomfortable. What am I supposed to look at? What am I, what's my role now? Now, you know, now you're like very conscious of the fact that you're observing or, uh, you know, you're not on autopilot. 
And I, and I, I like movies like that. Even though, you know, you, you have to adjust your patience and you're, you're probably more relaxed watching because you've got to kind of chill out for, for slow movies. But then you're really more active. You're having to use your predictive qualities a bit again. So for long scenes or when the camera dwells on something or you're put into an awkward emotional situation, let's say I'm sitting around, I'm, in a, I'm watching an Ozu movie, so I'm there sitting on a tatami mat with these people and there's subtle feelings and dynamics and stuff going on and I have to like, and it's not obvious. So I have to start feeling that feeling. And uh, I enjoy that. But it's not the kind of, I can't make, I'm on the Three Stooges end of entertainment. Not on the, on the, on the, on the Cassavetes end. <laughs> I was curious to hear what Katie Waldman, as a critic, makes of this kind of mystery in The Thousand One Nights, in movies, and TV shows, in which you always stand to learn something else. In which there's this forward motion that maybe isn't hopeful, but could entail hope. Where does that forward motion, that constant sense of something still to come, where does that lead us? As the Shahrazad metaphor illustrates so beautifully, when we talk about a narrative, when we talk about a story, we're talking about a life story and we're talking about someone's life. And I think actually that's another difference between reading a book and watching a TV show is, is you have this quality of voice. So you can have a tone. I, I don't know, actually tell me if you disagree with this, but I think in a TV show, you have a tone, you have an aesthetic, but you don't necessarily have a voice because it's not an entirely verbal medium. And you know whether the narrator is omniscient or it's very close to the character first person, there is a particular subjectivity in which the world is encased and through which you experience that world. And so the prospect of that story ending really evokes the prospect of that subjectivity, that mind dying. And I don't think that's true in TV. I mean, do you? I immediately went to the most auteurist television show I could think of which would be Twin Peaks The Return. Mm. If anything had a creative subjectivity running through it, it would, it would be that. But even in that, it is also just about things enduring in this dystopian. It's going to endure. It's not going to be like the good old Twin Peaks of the first two seasons, but it's going to go on in this, you'll watch someone sweep the floor sort of way. It does suggest something beyond death. Although... I'm going to cut all of my blathering here, but, but no, maybe that one would be an example. No, I, I hope you don't cut that because, uh, you know, as you say that, I'm thinking now of what is the Michaela Cole, I may destroy you uh, and Fleabag. Wow, that's interesting. It's like the, the female-led TV shows do seem to have this element of I am entrusting part of my soul to this TV show. And when the show ends... I don't get the sense that they are dead. I get the sense that they are walking away and living different chapters of their lives that we don't have access to. Whereas I think when a book ends, I really do feel like the, the narrator has, has vanished, has died, which is so interesting. It's like the book is more fused with the creator's soul than the TV show, <laughs> which doesn't even make any sense. To get back to your point about something lasting forever, there is that exhaustion when you imagine that something will just keep on going 
going forever. And Hardy White also describes a feeling that stories might take you to something wasted or empty. I'm into mythical places for sure, but not ones that tell stories. Like I don't care for the movies that are in mythical places and then they're world creating. They're world limiting, you know? (laughs) Every time they add another character, another detail, you know, they're shutting off possibilities. They're not creating them. So that, you know, if you've got seven books into this, I've created a whole world and a school and it's like, ugh. You know, all you've done is like eliminated possibilities. And whereas reality, we coexist with the possibilities. In fiction, they get murdered. They kill them and they're not there anymore. When comics reach that state, comics painted themselves into a corner and they go, oh, crap we really literally to continue being creative we have to we have to pretend there's other universes now because we just painted ourselves into a corner with our stupid details talking with katie waldman i wanted to know about better ways to deal with ongoing stories i'm thinking about reading joy williams one way that joy williams dramatizes that we have passed the finale, the curtains have closed. <laughs> the finale is over and yet we're still here. And so to, sort of the, the prevailing tone is like a bunch of people standing in a wasteland saying, now what? The sense of alienation and confusion is for some of these stories, what it means to keep going. You've kept going past where you thought things would end and you just don't recognize where you are. This is now what fiction we're talking about. Yes, yeah, yeah. And part of the the pleasure, but also the peril of now what fiction is everything is very strange and the rules have gone out the window and the morality might exist, but in a form we just can't comprehend. You know, White Lotus was set in Hawaii and now it's, you know, it's starting up again. There's another season. But in a different setting with different characters, this unrecognizable version of something that we knew. So it's this mix of something enduring and going on and something being completely new and different and uh, inaccessible to us. There's a sustained sense of discovery in what you're talking about. There is going to be novelty here that you're going to watch again or read again. There will be novelty. You're continually in a state of encountering something new, what gets learned from this? Is there a learning mood to this sort of narrative? So there are two questions that you can ask when you're standing in the desert saying, now what? And the first is, what do I see around me? And the second is, what did the past mean? Now that it's over, I can come to conclusions about it or maybe just mourn it. So there's this kind of dual journey or discovery which is both like, what do I do now? But also what conclusions can I draw? What can I, what can I discover about everything up till now that is lost, but now I may be better equipped to sort of parse its meaning and bring that meaning forward. What are some books that have left you better equipped, as you say? What, what are some books that sort of gathered these thoughts for you, in addition to Joy Williams, including Joy Williams? Well, I'm thinking of sort of dystopian fictions now, which are pretty good at this type of thing. Ling Ma Severance, I think, is one reflection of 
the end of capitalism and where we went wrong. Emily St. John Mandel does this really well with Station Eleven and her latest book is not dystopian in the same way, but has a lot of the same elegiac qualities. And then even things like the Arthurian legend where you have some great civilization that is lost now and enshrined only in myth. And what can we learn from the rise and fall of that paradise? I guess this is a pretty old theme. I mean, I think it's different for Joy Williams than it is for others. It may be worth drawing a distinction, at least for her, between humanist fantasy or the types of dreams and visions that come out of the human imagination specifically, and then the kind of post-human imagination, the world without us and something that we can't imagine. In a way, some of the most beautiful writing in Joy Williams is generated by the grief of the characters who see the despoiled world and kind of have these crazy flights of fancy that are like half memory and half dream about the way things used to be and how, you know, how beautiful the rain used to be and how it used to smell. And now the rain like clings like a gray sticky caterpillar to someone's arm, you know, it's like really fucked up. <laughs> and the characters imagine the way the rain used to sparkle. And so that's one type of fantasy that is born in a human brain and harkens back to the good way that things used to be. You could say that some of the really lovely, fantastical elements in Joy Williams are generated by grief and mourning, like sadness pricks her imagination and generates this language. But then on the other hand, there are parts of the book that are very surreal and strange and hard to follow, but in their own way, put you in a trance. The Thousand One Nights contain this related sense of, if not sadness, like horror, like something really horrible is behind this storytelling, there is a feeling of calamity, catastrophe, from which the narrator is taking you. Wait, I, I love that connection. Yeah, the, the stories in The Thousand and One Nights are generated by horror, by terror, by catastrophe, in the same way that Joy Williams's most beautiful prose is prodded or is brought forth by her own sense of horror at what has befallen the planet. Thank you for listening to The Cosmic Library. Guests this season include Katie Waldman, a critic at The New Yorker, Yasmin Seal, translator of The Thousand One Nights, Jim Al-Khalili, theoretical physicist and author of The House of Wisdom, Mazen Naus, professor in the English department at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and Hardy White, host of Miracle Nutrition on WFMU. 